This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom software for budgeting and planning by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for being here today. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and it is my great honor to be joined today by Gary Logan, Vice President for Finance and Administration at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Gary. Hi, hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. Well, to get us started today, Gary, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how you came to higher ed as a profession. That's my favorite first question to ask everyone, and (laughs) the story is always interesting. It is always interesting because most of my colleagues that I meet around around the country, it, we seem like we uh, happen upon higher ed more than than it is a, a plan, uh, and that's the case with me. I, I was I, I graduated from Texas Tech University in 1984, moved to San Antonio, Texas at the time, and went to work for at the time was one of the big eight accounting firms, Arthur Young. Uh, this particular office of Arthur Young. In, um, probably about 70% of the practice were uh, financial institutions, mostly savings and loans, uh, back in the day when we had savings and loans. Trinity was one of my audit clients, and I was exposed first to uh, private liberal arts education through that audit. And uh, they were a client of mine for about three years. And for, for those people long enough in the tooth to remember, in 1986-87, Uh, We had a savings and loan crisis, real estate crisis that really brought down that entire industry. And uh, I was one of the rats wanting to jump off the ship of public uh, (laughs) accounting at the time and and was looking for some place to land. And and the controller's position opened at Trinity. And I thought, well, this would be a good place to be for six months or so. So I found a quote unquote real job. And and so I, I took the job and I absolutely fell in love with not just higher education, but Trinity. And and, um, and, and so here I am still uh, today, this many years later. Um, and so it was a little bit of a surprise in how I, I got here. But once, once, I, uh, once I got in the industry, once I got into higher education, I fell in love with it. Now, did you go to another institution and then come back to Trinity or, or did I, mis- I did. see I- that somewhere? Okay. I have a little bit of a two a two institution game going. I don't know if, if that's going to continue. No, it's not. It's not going to continue. I'm just saying that. <laughs> anyway, um, I, so I was at Trinity as the controller for ten years. Um, my wife and I grew up together in a small town in West Texas, and when we had kids, we wanted to raise our children in a smaller town, and so we started looking around for a place where we could we could do that, and, and a position opened up at. Southwestern University. It's a small in a small town north of Austin, Texas, and um, and I was uh, blessed to be there. It's a great place to raise my kids, and was there for 16 years as uh, associate vice president for finance. I really expected it. Uh, I was likely to retire there, 
uh, never thought about coming back to uh, having the opportunity to come back to Trinity, but the position opened up and I was able to do that. And I was delighted to come back. As I said, I fell in love with Trinity early on. Southwestern's a phenomenal institution and I was blessed to be there. But I was very happy to be back at Trinity University and, and I'm hoping to finish my career out uh, here at Trinity. When you first entered higher ed as a profession, knowing that you had a little bit of uh, private sector background, anything you wish you knew, but you didn't when you were first starting out? You know, coming from outside of higher education, I think the the most challenging, there's there's several things that are challenging about the transition in, particularly for accountants and finance people, I think. Um, it requires much more collaboration. Uh, so I think uh, the pace of change is slower generally in higher education than what you experience outside of it. Um, I think how you get to a decision, the process by which you get to a decision in higher ed is uh, vastly more important because making process mistakes uh, really can upset the institution and your own career. Um, if you, uh, I, I have a, a rule I've developed, many, many of us have these, I guess, maxims of life. And one of my rules is the rule of the angry eight, uh, that any decision you make in higher education, there will be at least eight important people that are very angry at you um, <laughs> and will vehemently and publicly disagree. But but you do want a process in place that um, allows collaborative input and consideration. And people need to know that you uh, listen. And I think that's that's probably a, a lesson that I wish I, if someone had told me about earlier in my career, I've, I probably learned that the, the hard way. And I'm still learning that. I'm still trying to get better at that. I would love to hear a little bit more about the rule of the angry eight. So as you're going into a situation and you know you're going to upset people, um, how do you mitigate that up front at all or on the back end of a major decision? So uh, again, I think it's, I think an inclusive process where communication becomes very important. Trying to get out early uh, information about what is going on, uh, why why this decision has to be made, and I think as much as anything I've learned from our current president, Dr. Anderson, uh, being very clear with bodies that you engage in the communication of what exactly you're asking them to do. Am I asking for your uh, comments? Am I inviting you into the decision-making process or am I sharing information with you? But being clear from the beginning, he's very, very good at that. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I have to make a decision, for instance. I have to make this decision and I value your input. Uh, allows a person to understand they're not going to make the final decision for you or be a participant in the decision-making process other than you value their opinion. Um, and, and I think that really helps uh, set expectations and and reduces the number of angry people. <laughs> the corollary to the you know the rule of angry eight is that if you're if you're leading if you're if you're leading effectively that there are always going to be people that are that disagree with the decision, uh, and sometimes vehemently, sometimes angrily, and vocally, uh, you can't avoid that on some decisions. But I think if you can. Uh, establish a process that's fair and it's open, uh, transparent, uh, thoughtful. Uh, it reduces the number of people. And I think over time, as trust is built in an organization, if you're as you're there for a number of years, um, people tend to give you the benefit of the doubt. I think if you're if you're trying hard at the process. 
I love that. And that's a great distinction about setting the expectation up front, because I could see that being a problem if people are being asked for their opinions, but they don't realize that they're not actually part of the decision making process. But that's a really great um, piece of advice. What would you say is most exciting about your job today? Well, you know, I'm an accountant, so <laughs> it's a, so uh, it is all excitement all the time. It's all excitement all the time. I mean, that, that's exactly right. My uh, everyone around <laughs> the country would would agree with that. I think probably the most exciting thing in the last few years at Trinity, just the, uh, Trinity's campus, the current campus that Trinity University is located on, was built. Uh, beginning in the 1950s, most of the square footage was built out in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. And because of that, our campus is around 50 to 60 years old, almost in its entirety. And the life cycles of buildings are such that um, deferred maintenance or just maintenance required and renovation required on buildings is really highly correlated to the age of the buildings. And we're in that period right now at Trinity where there's an enormous amount of renovation that's that's required and taking place. We're fortunate to have uh, saved over many years funding for this. And so we have uh, much funding available to do it. But it's it's I'm focused much more heavily in capital projects and uh, renovations of buildings than I ever imagined that I would. I, I, I don't spend as much time in pure financial uh, management, the chief financial officer role, as I do more in the capital projects planning and budgeting role. One of the surprising things and kind of fun things about Trinity's campus is uh, the architect that did the original master plan and built uh, 2022 of the original buildings on campus. His name is O'Neill Ford. He's one of the more famous American mid-century uh, modernist architects. And Trinity has the largest collection of his buildings in, in the United States in one in one location. So we we were able a couple of years ago, we applied uh, for a national registry, historic districts are, um, uh, on campus, and we were able to, to get that. So that was kind of a fun and interesting thing in the last couple of years that I've been able to participate in and lead that I would have never imagined that I would be doing. That brings with it uh, many opportunities, I think recognition and, and some tax credit assistance as we ma maintain these old buildings. But it also brings challenges in, in trying to be sensitive to the, um, the the historic authenticity of the buildings and the uh, the vocabulary we might call it of the campus and the feel of campus, uh, and that brings some restrictions and challenges with it as well. Gary, I've heard that finding and recruiting new talent for higher ed is always on the mind of uh, those in higher ed at the upper levels. So. How would you say that you find and cultivate new team members looking for the, toward the future? That's a great question. It's a great challenge facing us. Uh, one of the things that we try to do at Trinity, this is going to be a little different than the question, and the answer is going to be a, a very a little different, I guess, from what you're asking. But um, first, first kind of a priority, I think, I think the modern uh, way of looking at talent is a little different than it was a few years ago. Um, in Trinity, we're trying to embrace this. And in, in the old way, we would look for talent in a financial person, for instance. Uh, we would look at our, we'd develop a, a position description. And then I would send out, I'd post that and we'd get a lot of resumes. And I would look at the resumes and say, who has the experience that lines up with what I'm looking for for this job? And, and, and we do that still. There's nothing wrong with looking at that. But I think a more modern way of looking at this is looking for 
uh, future talent and developability in a person more than just what they've done in the past. And we're trying to move more in that direction. And here I'm looking for, I would say, character uh, trumps everything. One of one of the you know the mantras in the business world is that that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I would say character eats strategy, character eats performance for breakfast. If so, I hire <laughs> I hire in my financial staff and in all my staff in my division first and foremost character, and that would include work ethic, um, ethical behavior. Um, if I can hire somebody that has that kind of moral grounding, uh, a compass uh, about them, um, that works hard, they're they're bright and curious. They want to know why things work. They they want to roll up their sleeves and and work hard to learn that. Uh, they want to take responsibility and accountability. Uh, and, and they do that in a way that treats that they do the right thing, uh, I would say, even when someone's not watching. If I can find those characteristics in a person, I can teach them how to do the math of, a, of accounting or finance, uh, the policies and procedures of the institution and how to serve the institution. If they don't have those things, I find they're, they're not going to be successful on our team, not as successful as they could be otherwise. Do you have an approach, Gary, to mentoring bright, shining stars, if you will, people that you see, even amongst your um, your group of talented folks? I would imagine there are some people that kind of rise to the top, whether they work directly with you or, you know, in, in associated departments. Do you have any approach to mentorship as you're working to kind of help them establish their own career paths? Well, I, I do. One, I try to have conversations with my uh, direct reports and, and to have them also have these conversations, coaching conversations with their direct reports of, uh, you know, what, what, what is it they aspire to do in their career and life? And, and, and then to try to help them uh, bring that about. And so if I'm, if I'm hiring the right kind of people, they, they usually have a plan. Uh, you know, they, they, they aspire to be something different five or 10 years uh, from when we hire them than they are when we hire them. And understanding that and then being willing to help them uh, move along is important. And so that might look like um, uh, the, the Nakubo Fellows, I think, is a great program. And Trinity has uh, one of our, our finance um, personnel involved in that program uh, this year uh, as a next step in, in her career. Uh, other Nakubo conferences and internal uh, learning opportunities are important. But I think one of the most important things in my career, and I, and I try to share with other people, is the opportunity uh, where, where a person desires it, an opportunity to step outside their comfort zone and uh, to take a chance uh, to try something new a new initiative, a new leadership skill that gets developed, and and for me to create for them a safe place to be wrong. Uh, we don't want to make big mistakes. I don't want to damage the institution, their career, or mine if we can avoid it. But one of the great gifts that was given to me in my own career uh, was my first boss I had at Trinity University, who mentored me exactly that way. That. Uh, she expected a lot from me. She gave me a lot of responsibility and she effectively 
uh, shielded me in a way that allowed me to make mistakes and grow without it being incredibly damaging to my career. So that meant that she was taking uh, a lot of that heat herself. She provided a little bit of a shield for her people. And, you know, behind closed doors, we would have conversations about, well, we should have done this rather than that. And so there was a lot of coaching that went on. And I try to be the same type of coach and mentor to my people that that I give them opportunities, particularly where they look like they they want that chance. uh, And I try to not throw them under the bus uh, if and when they make a mistake, because we learn from our mistakes probably more than from our successes. But uh, it's 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 nice if you have a safe environment where you can make a mistake and um, and learn from it and grow. Gary, let's say you were retiring six months from now. What would you want your successor to know as you look back over your, on your career, not only at Trinity, but just uh, in higher ed in, in general? What lessons would you try to impart to your successor? I think one of the most important things for the chief business officer of an institution is to have a, a really clear idea in your mind of how you're going to measure success. Uh, and, and I mean this, uh, how, how do you measure financial health? What are the few, and this, the few metrics that are the most important for you? What is financial health for an institution, your particular institution? What does that look like? What does financial health for Trinity University look like? How do we measure it? How do we communicate it? What does cultural success look like for the organization? How do I want uh, the community to function? And here I'm thinking of, and for my own division, our code of ethics, our uh, collaboration, the way we, we work through process, and the individual that we treat people you know, fairly uh, 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 transparently with, with honor and respect. There's a few things like that. If say, what are those things that I'm unwilling to compromise on, and hold firmly to those? While everything else in life you have to compromise on, because that's the way things get done. Um, and and knowing the difference between those two, I think can can make a big difference in a person's career, because uh, higher education, because of our shared governance structure. Oftentimes, you, you don't get exactly what you want. Most of the time, <laughs> most of the time, <laughs> you don't get exactly what you want. But do you have a goal, a long-term goal and vision that you're helping move the institution forward toward as I align resources to assist the institution to achieve its strategy and its mission? Can I, can I live with the decision that's being made today in pursuit of this greater good and goal? But there are some things where I would say I'm unwilling to compromise on, and I'm very open about those things with the with the president, with the board, with the community. Those are the those are those few essentials, and everybody has to decide what those are. So I would I would say that that the other thing I learned from from my predecessor in this position is that he left an incredible legacy of organization and uh, paperwork. Uh, so, so I would recommend everyone do that as we're uh, nearing the end of our careers or leaving a position is to take uh, this probably was a month and organize your thoughts and uh, paperwork and documents into a series of whether they're electronic files or paper files and really to leave you really helping your successor because that's helping the institution 
uh, be in a place to succeed, I think is uh, is important for us as uh, chief business officers. Gary, I know that innovation is a really important part of higher education right now. So how would you, where do you look for pockets of inspiration and innovation when it comes to figuring out how to make competing needs uh, work at, at your campus at Trinity? Well, the source of inspiration, I think, for innovation most of the time, I, I, I don't know that I don't know that I'm very innovative in coming up with new ideas. I love to hear what other institutions are doing. Nakubo is invaluable uh, to us as an institution because of that. So the collaboration that we have with other institutions, whether that's uh, Trinity's a member of the Associated Colleges of the South, the Independent Colleges and Universities of Texas, uh, Sakubo and Nakubo. Uh, each of those organizations in their own way have contributed enormously, it, it really in unspeakable ways, to our understanding of, of what innovation looks like in a particular area. And this, this is so powerful for us as an institution that, that this is one of the great strengths of higher education, in my opinion, is that I, can, I feel like I can pick up the phone and call anyone, uh, no matter a private or public institution, large or small, competitor, uh, a competitive overlap school or not. And everyone is so generous in helping. This is how we do this. This is how we do that. As we work through those conversations, you know, maybe 90% of the things I learn aren't what Trinity needs to do to be successful. But then there's that one uh, that you find that says, yes, that's what we need. And so uh, then we can take that and apply it and we can even get help from the institution and in how best to apply that innovation. So I, again, I don't know that Trinity creates a lot of innovative things ourselves, but I think we assimilate innovation from many of our colleagues. And I think we do that pretty well as an institution. Gary, what would you say is the biggest opportunity that faces CBOs today? There's a rule I have is that, you know, as we think about our value systems as an institution, uh, whatever we say those are, this is what we believe in, A, B, C, D. These are our values. These are our priorities. There's a sense where the budget is uh, tells everyone this is what you actually believe is important. It, it's where we spend our time and our money that tells a story of what an institution values. I don't think many people in higher education outside of the finance folks understand that, that the budget is, the financial statements are a statement of the university's commitment to particular things, whether that's faculty compensation, uh, renovation of buildings, diversity, whatever that is. If I say I believe in something, but I never put any money into it, uh, the budget tells calls, calls a lie to that, I think. And so I think helping uh, the leadership of the institution understand we, there's, there's more good things to do in any institution than we ever have resources to accomplish. And now it becomes a process of prioritization and hard decisions and trying to focus those on the most important things, the, the, those things that are the greatest good, I think is a great gift that uh, uh, CBOs can provide an institution. And the sharper we can, we can be in that way, the better the institution is, because it's a very difficult process of prioritizing resources, but, a very, but it's probably one of the most important things an institution does. Gary, anything else you'd like to share that I've neglected to ask today? 
I would go back, I guess, and just reiterate to people that are, that aspire to be a chief business officer how important it is to work hard at character development. Uh, I think hard work is is a good thing. Um, that that opportunities come to us. I think uh, oftentimes because of preparedness and and hard work. I think that's true in the area of accounting and finance uh, as much or more than anywhere else. But I would recommend to people that uh, uh, I really do believe that character uh, trumps everything else. And uh, how we lead by example, how we treat other people, uh, how we treat issues that are very difficult sometimes that are seem like there's no good answer to something. Um, that that becomes so important, and it's very hard work. And so, uh, reading uh, books on uh, historical characters, on difficult decisions that have been made, and how they dealt with them, uh, developing a moral compass, um, uh, thinking about ethical issues, developing your staff in that area, developing a culture of ethics is uh, incredibly important. And and so I would I would really emphasize that over technical abilities and people, as I said, I think uh, character eats uh, technical skills and strategy for breakfast. Any particular character building books you might recommend? Oh, uh, I could probably go on for a long time. And, what's your uh, favorite? What's your uh, favorite? What's my favorite? Well, um, uh, what have you most often gifted to somebody else? I would say the most. <laughs> so uh, I'm a person of faith. And so one of the things that I do as a matter of discipline for me, this is just for, for, for Gary Logan, is I, I try to read uh, uh, the proverb of the day, which is if, if it's the, uh, the, the 18th or whatever, 19th of December, I'll, I'll read the 19th uh, proverb. And that, that helps me, I think, just from a very practical sense, uh, uh, build a, uh, an ethical structure around my thinking. Um, there's many good books out there. There's a uh, there's a book. Um, trying to think, the road to character, and I'm drawing a blank on the the author's name. Um, it's a study of kind of mid century, 20th century characters. Many of uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, some of the people of Pershing, General Pershing, and the character that they had, uh, many of us don't know much about these folks, and it's it's uh, really worth reading. Uh, that I, I would highly recommend that book. Um, and, and again, there's there's many others I read I read uh, constantly on various topics, but uh, those are the two I think that are probably most useful to me. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for your time today and for sharing just a few of your experiences and philosophies and books with us today. Great, right. thanks. You can find out more about Gary and today's episode by visiting the conferences and e-learning section of nakubo.org, then click podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks and Apple Podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Gary and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom software for budgeting and planning by visiting kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Thank you.